0: So one thing I was thinking about in preparing to speak with you is the fact that treatment of this sort, a a treatment that places psychoanalysis at its center as the treatment also in Quebec that you mentioned earlier does, the the Center for the Treatment of Young Psychotic Adults, the 388. Yeah, there are psychiatrists, there's medication, not against that many other components as well but of course psychoanalysis play, is is key to to how they work with these individuals and and they see that you are in the position of analyst and other people may be doing the work of the of the psychiatrist of of offering or supplying medication and all of this however the fact that it's so rare to to really work with psychoanalysis on psychosis, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or that at least it's not mainstream, really makes me wonder about what is, what makes it so rare since it's, I mean, of course I'm a very biased uh, (laughs) interlocutor because I'm already very interested in psychoanalysis, but from how you're speaking about this, it seems very, you know, like just very human to to think this could be like listening like it, this deserves to be listened to. It's difficult, but it could, it, but something could come out of of listening. And then also in in hearing, I'm going to back up to the very beginning of your of, of our interview when you were talking about your own trajectory becoming the clinician that you are. Now, I was hearing something about a, a true desire to understand what something happening for someone else, like an, someone else's experience. You were you were attuned that like you were aware that there were these extreme states, to put it in a term, and you and you seemed to want to to attune yourself to that. And it seems to me. That that in principle, why wouldn't this be like a very common or a very popular way of, of working? Why is it not a popular way of working this is the very simple question am I, I'm asking, or maybe it's not simple. And maybe you can answer that by, you know, in terms of the obstacles that you see mm-hmm. around you or that you encounter in the yeah, in
1: yeah. the
0: United States in particular, because also this is where you practice and, the, and there must be, you know, specific things that <laughs> that emerge as obstacles.
2: Yeah, just keep, it's not popular? No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it, it's not.
2: Maybe it is. No, I don't know. It, it's, I'd like you know, it to be. <laughs> well, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I have no idea in a way. I mean, I have ideas, of course, but it's just sort of my, my first thought is, I think I'm always trying to understand that. I mean, why? in a way, why would it be? Why would anyone want to know this? Or, I mean, which sounds kind of a little bit arrogant. Not that why would anyone want to know this, but isn't there a way in which psychoanalysis is often the last resort, maybe for someone? (laughs) It's often, you often hear, well, I tried this and that. And why wouldn't you rather find some pill? I mean, even analysts say this, right? If they ever find a pill that will take care of psychosis, then it'll be better for them or something. I don't really believe that. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think, I don't even think, I mean, even what, what does that even mean? You know, there's no way that's going to happen. It's like getting rid of grief or something. Why would you do that? But so, yeah, I guess I do. It it boggles the mind in a way. I think a lot of it is just sort of certain over time, uh, entrenched preconceptions about psychoanalysis, Freud, you know, there's a way in which, over the last century, it became part of popular culture. And I mean, I'm not an expert on these things, but people sort of think they know what it is in a way. So it have, a, therefore, a kind of knee-jerk reaction, uh, I think, in the field of um, psychology. And I don't even think in psychiatry they're even considering this at all anymore. But in psychology, it still gets a certain lip service in terms of the history. By, by this, I mean Freudianism or psychoanalysis in general. There's a kind of lip service to it that that was the first wave of clinical work and it's sort of very <laughs> historical and they've buried it, you know, yeah. it's that sort of thinking, which is not very honest. You know, it's not a, it's not, it's a, it's not the case. You know, there's a way in which psychoanalysis, the principles therein are sort of very much alive and, and relevant, you know, even mm-hmm. to things like psychosis. But I think the question for me is always, well, how do you, who are you trying to speak to about it? It's one thing to speak to a Lacanian a group of Lacanians about it it's another thing to speak to people with lived experience about it
1: mm-hmm. it's another
2: thing to speak to psychiatrists about it or medical doctors about it or family members so I, I guess what I would you know one one you can have more or less obstacles in your way depending on how you choose to discuss it and the terms I use to to talk about it I yeah. think there are w- ways to to transmit the principles that are Not all of them, but that are most important in in completely uh, non-analytic language, you could say. Uh And and, I mean, I do that pretty extensively in the book, I think, when I turn to the Hearing Voices movement and, and talk about how struck I am and was by what people with lived experience discovered in terms of what's important and how to listen and how to intervene and the results that they sometimes get in terms of. Radical changes in the experience of the person, radical changes in the, the voices and in the beliefs, and in finding freedom, because that's what this is about, right? It's yeah. Some degree of freedom from what was once determining your every thought and move. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you don't, I, I try to, la- I, I more or less sort of lay off certainly the Lacanian language, but when I'm talking to, when it's not necessary and I want to cut through obstacles and resistance. Some of that's just for us. It's for me to think in a, in a, in a faster, more abstract way about what's going on. It's not necessarily relevant to every situation. Yeah. So I haven't hesitated to go outside of so-called outside of psychoanalysis, but, you know, into a align with anyone, any, any approach that shows respect for the experience.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's that respect and I don't know that you, I don't know how you learn that. I think that you learn that only from experience. One's, you said this in one of your questions, the way you framed it about how Jafric understands transference and the position of the analyst and how they work that it issues from one's analytic experience or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Well, what is one's analytic experience, right? What, that's about someone's encounter with, with death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me with, with absence. And like you say, that's a different notion of transference and it positions the analyst differently and it causes one to listen differently. And we suppose that somewhere for the patient, those are, there are similar, st- if they're human, that the stakes are not that different. So there, are, I don't think I've said anything analytic in the last couple of minutes. I mean, I think how yeah. to me, I, and so anyway, what I'm saying is that we you can get a good response if yeah. we, if we speak about the experience
0: Uh uh-huh yeah. about
2: the experience and we need some concepts but I don't think I have to get lost in the weeds to try you know to try to um share uh a way of working but I think it all comes in the end it comes down to results
0: right
2: and the results are not clear-cut necessarily and don't always happen and You know, these are not, yeah, I I think we do have evidence, (laughs) you know, for our work and it comes in the form of case studies and testimony of patients and analysands and like the people that are in the book and the people that I mentioned, this is the evidence we use in psychoanalysis because we're talking about a singular subject, not a statistical average, which is not nothing either, right? It's just not what I do. So, so I don't know if that's that's just, yeah, I think if, if the goal is to get psychoanalysis out there, mm-hmm. there's more obstacles. I'm more interested in the position and the approach and results.
0: Yeah. No, this is a really interesting answer that you're...
2: Psychoanalysis for me is secondary to that. It's mm-hmm. not the point.
0: Yeah. It seems like you're sort of like you're recommending to, like you said, not getting lost in the weeds. So like recommending that maybe one of the obstacles is the very, well, it's like the reputation that psychoanalysis has made for itself. And in particular, Lacanian psychoanalysis and the jargon that comes with it and the inaccessibility that it presents for many people or for, and, and maybe like being able to get rid of if if we think of that uh, that that vocabulary as analytic then we don't necessarily need it because what's necessary is the the ethics <laughs> like the ethics that's in your subtitle right like what what is what is necessary is like the position that and also the results and and there you're speaking of being able to point to results in a way that's beyond just numbers, not just statistical, but it's in, terms life, right? in terms of a life. In terms of yeah. a life. It's a whole life. And then the what you said about freedom also was making me think of like that that would sound good if if, if the American social link had ears. <laughs> like the word freedom always sounds good to to the American Social Link. So uh-huh. so that is like a nice way to like uh open things up or to like move the obstacles aside and see like what psychoanalysis would have to offer. Yeah. You
2: know? Right yeah and free yeah freedom's a touchy word, I suppose too, right but like it was said at a recent conference that someone was talking about you know it's in psychoanalysis, it's freedom knowing that one is still bound in some way, right that's not yeah. I suppose in psychosis you could say there's a kind of freedom <sighs> yeah. complete freedom or something, which is not doesn't turn out so good, you know, yeah. like we we're saying that the other has a certain freedom to do anything in in this in the scheme of delusion, for example,
0: yeah. But the subject is completely well, Subjective. yeah. Is is like lost to this to this uh, capricious other or something. It's kind right. Of, so in, you know, despite the fact that in the practice and in like trying to you know start more clinics for the treatment of psychosis, we could get rid of or we could set aside the vocabulary, the theoretical density of things in order there is in your book a really interesting thread going you know across all of it that comes from reading philosophy and you do even have a chapter or two i'm not i'm not sure right now on deleuze and you also have kant in mind so i i think that i don't know something that 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 i'm very curious to hear you say something about because in particular, Deleuze is often recognized as a detractor of psychoanalysis, as someone who very harshly criticized the institution along with Guattari. And and also, they are known to be thinkers, I guess, who were trying to decenter neurosis and recognize a knowledge in psychosis. So that's where it makes sense. So could you just say something about how Deleuze enters your work on psychosis
2: yeah i can try and that you know these these this is kind of an area where for me it's better written probably okay you know but what could i say i i think i mean i think in what i'm focusing on i think i make a couple of arguments there that just to be transparent for me kind of go back a ways that i'm not necessarily too concerned with at this point one being what you just highlighted which sort of I guess Deleuze and Guattari's critique of Lacan and all of that, and so I take that on a bit. But I think even that and, and anything else that I say there is more toward the point or the question of the body. And so I think for me, and, and I'm not someone who's read Deleuze really very widely. I mean, for me, it was like Anti-Oedipus and Thousand Plateaus or something, and sort of really around the question of um, the body and the body as a site of social contestation. I think I call it. Uh-huh. But I, I found him them, because really I, what I learned from a, one of the, I guess, a biography of sorts, um, is that really some of those more innovative terms are, were Guattari's terms, you know, body without organs and desiring machines and, and these kinds of things. But anyway, I was drawn to their work when I was quite, again, quite young, not really understanding it. But again, it, There was something about my own subjective experience, but also what I was seeing that it just made sense to me that there are these different kinds of objections and resistance and rebelliousness and the way they talk about psychosis as such, but also addiction. You know, I think Watari has a a short thing in one of those semi-text books. Oh yeah. uh, Calls addiction a molecular revolution or a revolution at the molecular level. So to me, again, it's, it's a, it makes sense uh, to me. Right, uh, the to view what psychiatry would view as pathology as as uh, an act,
0: mm-hmm. h- however
2: death defying it might be or death seeking as as a trying to find a kind of line of flight, as mm-hmm. they call it sometimes, out of a, what is what feels to be a very kind of censoring and determined space in the world. So I think for the you know I'm some very rusty on this part, but it, you know it's that's what spoke to me. And also, I think I'm trying to talk about the letter of the body. Which oh, yeah. Is not really what Lacan calls it. That's more of a kind of Apollon's term, right? The letter of the body, letters of the body, the field of uh, the letter, the letter of the law versus the law of language, sort of this, this, this thing that, uh, that escapes, right? And so I think I'm working there on sort of in, in different ways discussing the letter of the body and the body of the psychotic in terms of also in terms of their idea of the body without organs. The body without organization. Yeah. And the body as opposed to the organism, right? Which is the organism is what medical science deals with. And right. psychoanalysis is interested in sort of how the subject has this other body. Yeah, you know, and the body in psychosis is very important, right? Because it it can be full of objects too that are implanted there. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a very porous body, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, so, uh, it, it helped me and helps, you know, I appreciate the thinking and uh, around the body of the psychotic as a site of contestation. Again, you know, begin, you know, it, it, it dovetails or, or fits with a sort of fundamentally approaching the experience and recognizing the, the symptoms, the, ex- the, the acts, the, the, you know, psychosis itself as, as uh, having a very specific kind of purpose. Yeah. Uh, You know, they also, I think if I'm wrong, if I'm not wrong, they discuss psychosis where psychosis can become kind of pure death, you know, can really go off the deep end Uh uh, versus, which is sort of paradoxical in their thinking, I think, but, you know, sort of this kind of the controlled use of, of, of psychosis, Uh, not, not, I can't remember the exact terminology, but there's this distinction between, you know, the crisis and becoming catatonic or spending one's life in the hospital versus, I don't know, some other kind of sampling of psychosis or something like that. But I, I don't know that I go very far. Yeah. With them, but I think it's important. I, I And this is somewhat hearsay, but, you know, my understanding is that Willie Apollon's dissertation chair was Deleuze and, yeah. can hear Deleuze and I believe very clearly in Apollon's.
0: Yeah, I think so
2: too. So I think that was a really... A very direct, like a need to, uh-huh. to deal with that, uh, and yeah. I think that he, I'm sure he could say a lot about that. But um,
0: no, this is a wonderful answer. In fact, I think okay. what I'm interested in is I, I, I'm, I want to highlight the fact that that reading philosophy can, can, can come into a very. Into a different kind of work. Well, I mean, Deleuze always thought about like the critical and the clinical, and he had oh, so, yeah. this yeah. in mind. But his own practice was strictly critical, or I don't know. Maybe one could talk about some of the things he did as acts. So then you're no mm. longer only in a in well, a course, critical Guattari position. Was, and he was an analyst. Yeah, Guattari was an analyst.
2: The uh, clinic and all
0: that. So yeah.
2: Analysis with Lacan, I guess. So that's a very different story <laughs> Story and, and what he's bringing I think
0: yeah but yeah. actually you also I, I mean I really liked how you w- walked us through like the body without organs the letter of the body yeah. but then you also talk about the law of the letter and you you mentioned it now and you say this in in your book as well that, that it's on the other side of the law of language the the law of the letter I guess the of the body so yeah how does this law of the what is it like to work with this law of the letter in in analysis
2: yeah i mean i think i'm just i think the other link there is has is with regard to the position of the analyst and where who, what side is the analyst on
0: uh-huh yeah
2: and i think someone asked me too about this idea that the the i was saying that the analyst is outside the law which they were thinking sounded perverse or something like that but it's That's not the case. The law has certain effects. But anyway, so again, I think uh, I think being on being on the side of the letter, this gets abstract, but on the side of the letter versus on the side of sense. Mm. uh, Yeah. reality or a biology, Mm -hmm. the capital B or something, but instead always trying to be the listener for the letter. Mm -hmm. And so that has to do with the body, but also the voice as object, I think, as letter, or as something that falls and has to do with the cut, kind of an originary cut of language and its law of of separation and castration. And I think, I mean, I think the the letter is operative in in any field, any any structure you want to talk about, but um, I, I don't know how... Much more I can say about that, but I think I think for me uh, it, it had to do with trying to pinpoint or suggest where the the position of the analyst could be.
0: Yeah, I guess that one thing that's striking about that expression of a law of the letter is that it has nonetheless some its own law that <laughs> it has that it's not just the it's not only the rebelliousness of the letter right it's the law <laughs> and a law of its own that that could be tracked or, or something like that
2: That's- well yeah and I'm having trouble accessing exactly what I was probably meaning there but when you say it, and you know, kind of when you bring it because that, that is very clear right I wonder about again delusion and how you know the, you know the phenomenal the expressions of psychosis that are very very structured and often can be very rigid
1: mm-hmm. and
2: law-like and it also makes me think of the, the dream which we haven't gotten too much but the function of the dream and the treatment of psychosis and I think there I talk about the law of dream language yeah uh, yeah uh, in the way in which you know it's a law <laughs> I don't know what the law of dream language is exactly but you know the dream brings a certain limit mm-hmm. you know Lacan talk uh, Freud talks about the the, um, the navel of the dream of course
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and the navel of the dream is that you know he calls it the kind of unplumbable depth the, the point at which things again, run aground, there's a kind of lack there. So where there's lack, there's a limit or there's a law. Maybe that's kind of what we're getting at. And we're trying to bring that limit to bear in psychosis.
0: Oh yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. Right. So when you, when you have the navel of the dream, you you have nothing else to say necessarily. It's a, it sort of marks that place, this this lack. So I think maybe I'm using law in that sense as, as limit.
1: Uh The letter is
2: a limit to the law or the language. I can't say it all, you know, there's always this more, there's always this extra, perhaps.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. That's clarifying. Thank you. I think maybe we could turn to another unique thing that happens in your book, which is that you... And you've also been pointing to this throughout the interview. Here, you work with other modes of work aside from psychoanalysis. In particular, the Hearing Voices Network is something that you bring up, and and it's another mode of treatment. So, what can my question is just what can psychoanalysis learn from these other kinds of treatment, and how did they help your research and your practice?
2: Yeah. So, like you like you mentioned, there's this organization called the Hearing Voices network, which comes out of a global hearing voices movement. I mean, anyone can look into what that's about, but it's, it's a movement that began in the 80s in the Netherlands and grew out of a collaboration between a psychoanalyst, uh, no, between a uh, social psychiatrist, Marius Rome, and his patient after his patient said, what you're doing is not helping. And they, I think he asked her, well, would you like to talk to other people? that are having similar experiences. And over time, this sort of grew into the creation of a, a regional and then a global sort of movement with different networks of groups, basically. So it's, it's peer groups. Um, and so I, I just sort of ran across these things in my travels to various conferences, and I started attending conferences that you know, with the, like you mentioned, ISPS, the International Society for the Psychological and Social Approaches to Psychosis, which is another organization that is not focused on any clinical orientation, but more on bringing like-minded clinical approaches together to think about psychosis in other than reductive ways. And so within there, you find a lot of people from the Hearing Voices Network and family members and peer, so-called peer specialists, people who live with have lived with psychosis, but are in some level of recovery. And so they now are able to work with others and facilitate groups. But as what I think, it's kind of going back to the basic question of, you know, I don't know. I mean, I often say, what do we have to learn from? It's the same question. What do we have to learn from psychosis itself? But I was very struck because collaborating with the Hearing Voices groups here in the Bay Area, you know, I took some training to be a group facilitator, etc., to really better understand the model, and then learn from interviews and discussions with people that run the groups and hearing the results of those groups. I was very struck by how it does seem to constitute a kind of something beyond support. Uh, and you know, I say in the book that I'm using the word treatment carefully because I think they find that treat that word itself stigmatizing because treatment supposes uh, an illness uh-huh. and they very much operate with the idea that voices. Don't necessarily indicate an illness.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Anyway, by treatment, I mean it analytically, in that there's a kind of symbolic treatment of mm-hmm. delusion, for example,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and they call them frameworks. And I give some lengthy examples in the book about transformation for one or two people, where their relation, you know, the, the, the relationship to their delusional beliefs changed and the delusional beliefs themselves dissolved and were replaced by reckoning with traumatic history, for example. So this is exactly the model that, say, I was taught in Giffre, in a way, right? That by different methods, through dream work, a person's subjective traumatic history is evoked, that then parallels in certain ways or or highlights what the delusion was for, how the delusion was functioning to cover over or explain sort of unspoken and yet unknown traumatic encounters, and then, and only then, you know, that person can then speak about that and the stakes of those losses and, and, and injuries. And so maybe the delusion is no longer viable, uh-huh. believable in the same way or necessary. So the same thing I saw and heard about happening with voices and delusions through these groups, you know, in the interview with Cindy Hedge, and there she talks about a voice she heard when she started attending the groups, that it was a crying baby and she discovered by being sort of gently and curiously questioned about the context of the voice, not the truth of the voice or why, you know, that you should uh, stop listening to it or any of that. She realized that the, the crying baby was there for a reason because she only heard at the end of the day, at the end of the of a year and a half of work with other people mm-hmm. that she discovered that the voice, she heard the crying baby when she felt threatened or that it always corresponded to moments when she felt threatened in the present. But of course that was always evocative of some kind of other series or traumatic of traumatic encounters in her life. And so she stopped hearing that because as she said, I no longer needed it. I knew what I had to think about
1: though.
2: Hmm. So it's the same question because her metaphor is the one you brought up earlier about the person walking down the street
1: That's hard say,
2: okay. and they say, Oh, this person is sort of aggressively following me down the street. I'm going to cross the street the person crosses the street and keeps following them. They do it. They cross again, keeps following them. Eventually you have to turn around and say, well, what do you want?
1: Yes. So
2: that that's a metaphor for what happened to her. I think in that example of she had to start listening or become curious instead of just avoiding it. Right. Cause it often the case, the voice is something to be contended with and warded off. And, you know, just like difficult feelings and thoughts and neurosis, people ward them off and, medicate to get rid of them and yeah. maybe rather than confronting what, what, what's trying to come out. So, so I, uh, do we have something, the thing to learn is not, I think it's interesting to learn that, that different method leads mm-hmm. to a similar result. I think mm-hmm. we need to learn that. And again, learn that just how surprise again, surprising it is. It's, it's like always, again, it's surprising that the solution is coming from, from the experience. Yeah. That's not That's- analytic. But it's, the ethic is the same. The choices of the people questioning her are the same. It's the same kind of ethic, similar ethical position. That's how the way I explain it, I think, is that it's, it's there's a vast difference in technique, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but the ethics are very similar in terms of how, how the phenomena are approached. But also the ethic of the person in the experience. They Again, you can stick with your symptom, right? Anyone can.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And not take the risk of losing it. So yeah. It's, there's it's kind of the ethics is a field that both the analyst and the patient are in together. Yeah. It's not my ethics or your ethics, it's sort of what is the it's a question of an ethical choice in the face of new knowledge, something new that is known. What do you do with that?
0: Yeah. That's beautiful. That that brings us straight back into the transference, which is a question I was saving for for now. I wanted to ask you about the contributions that you you make in your book especially regarding transference with psychotic subjects so i'm just going to to go through very quickly through a little bit of the history of this transference since it's not the main concept that we have been working on but it's crucial to to speaking about psychosis in okay with you so let me just like recapitulate that transference you know is a concept that exists since Freud, he introduced it to make sense of a treatment where the unconscious of the patient is at stake and not only the conscious self. And Lacan advanced and refined this concept, right? when he defined transference in terms of the analyst as a subject supposed to know, and the love of the analysand's unconscious savoir, or knowledge. And they You know, neither Freud nor Lacan had the psychotic structure at the center of this concept of transference they were working with, though. And that, so it's not surprising that their patients were not primarily psychotic subjects, even if Lacan did do some work on psychosis. And yeah, so instead, so then after them, we can place the Quebec analysts, Apollon, Bergeron, and Quentin, who have been working who have, who have a center for the treatment of psychotics based on a ref, redefinition of transference, especially. And so let's see. So, so I see, I think that you have been stressing throughout the whole interview, this, d- this analyst's desire to know about the void that the, that the patient has been, I don't know, has faced and to which the delusion is responding. But in the book, you uh, discuss the question in terms of reversal of the relationship to knowledge, right? So like, instead of the analyst as a subject supposed to know, here we are moving away from that supposed knowledge of the analyst to a reversal that, well, you can explain more about why it's a reversal. And then you also discuss the problem of bridging the gap between the psychotic and the non-psychotic experience as part of the challenge that the non-psychotic clinician might be faced with. So I wonder if you can say more about this gap as well, and then how the, how bridging the gap has is something different from, from just a normative uh, approach that would try to get the patient to have a grasp on reality, as opposed to having lost touch with reality, but I think you have throughout the, this interview been really helping to, to see, uh, to move us away from that rigid, I don't know, dichotomy yeah. b- between reality or lost reality. But in, in any case, what is this gap all about? And how would you describe the bridge that you have identified for this gap in the treatment of, of psychosis? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question, I know, but it's...
2: <laughs> no, that's a great... Set of questions. So I think the first part is kind of just after you mention kind of Jufrić's work and the reversal. I mean, I think they use this term in a way too, but you put it in an interesting way, which is you're asking about. Uh, I guess I must say that there's a reversal of a relation to knowledge.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I mean, I think the, the the basic reversal, I would define it as, um, you know, it's it's a reversal of like you said the other. The opposite, which is the sub, the, the, the analyst being su- supposed to know, yeah. right? which is, I guess, a classic, or it's it's a standard of um, neurotic transference, mm-hmm. which I suppose it could mean other things too, but to me is always, that's sort of the place things begin, maybe, whether they say it or not, is that I'm, you know, heal me or supposing the analyst to have the key to their to unlock something for them. And so there's this kind of transference or supposition of knowledge to the person of the analyst or the position of the analyst as the one who has the answer.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and so the yeah. work in neurosis, I suppose, is to not assume that position and to present or to, 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 to operate from a, of a desire to know what, what, uh, to help the unconscious emerge. Mm-hmm. For that person, so that's neurosis, I guess. But it's reversed, and I, I think I've kind of glossed on this a couple of times. In a it's very simple. I think that again, like Lacan said, we're secretaries.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Insane. So that's a reversal right there. You know that they're not. So, they, but you know, if in my experience with certain people, some of the ones I've described in the patient in the book, I think where they uh, the. These particular people aren't coming in saying, I have this problem. I want to work on this problem. There's a kind of phase or phases of explaining, teaching me what is happening. The big problem in the universe that maybe they've been elected or chosen to fix. Mm-hmm. In Jifreak, they call this you know, the mission to repair the defect in the universe. That's the kind mm-hmm. of good formula. right? That's mm-hmm. That's a structure that you hear. Mm -hmm. Uh, certain psychotic presentations. I would say kind of truly psychotic presentations where the delusion is very, is dealing with the universe of language, the universe in general, that's diagnostic too, I think. But anyway, so that's, I think that's the reversal there. uh, Mm -hmm. The main thing, but again, the reversal in relation to knowledge. So there's the knowledge that's inherent in anyone's delusion and the voices. And whatever else is going on, but we're also supposing to to the subject a knowledge that maybe underlies the creation of that delusion and uh-huh. the content of the voices, right? So I think that can be. And there's infinite forms of that, but I think I've mentioned a couple of examples already of how there's an underlying history, subjective history, not chronological history, a subjective history and truth that is. Uh, also, knowledge. So that's in a way what we're, I guess, waiting for.
1: Uh-huh.
2: So, but so there's a you also asked, I think, about sustaining it. So I think there's a question of evoking it or installing it. Sometimes they say,
0: Yeah, installing, installing the, the transference. Example,
2: but, you know, you can install this thing, but there's a kind of um, establishing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and so, the, this kind of lengthier example I gave of working with that person who came for years. Uh, where it seemed that it was really just me being a good secretary. You know, that I never, it was only years later when I, you know, I was describing how all of a sudden there was maybe as an effect of my listening and questioning and and time and other the change in her symptoms caused her to question her symptoms. So there, I think there is where you have something to sustain. Now I was sustaining my, End of it, never hearing a response. So, so, like putting out a something into into space, but you never get a. There's never a response, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, there was this response of I would call the subject right coming in the form of doubt and a question. Yeah. Uh, so, so is she going to take that take up the challenge? Well, she did, and that led to consequences or you know uh, results in her life and allowed her to do things that couldn't be done. Yeah. uh because they weren't they were in a different uh, register. So it, am I
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess I was excited about the these terms of um of the gap and the br- and bridging the gap. Okay.
2: Yeah, that's a separate thing. So yeah. you want me to go to that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, sure. this is a it's a more recent interest or like concern for me. And so this has to do with the transference and my position and uh, the way I usually describe it is, you know, it's I was finding myself reaching kind of impasses with different people, different patients, and started to wonder if it was the position I was taking. So, and this is oversimplifying, but sort of a more orthodox notion of the position of the analyst in the transference, one of, you know, occupying a position of of absence, presenting a certain absence. And I I wanted to find some way to deal with this. And um, I started reading the work of Francoise d'Avoin. Mm -hmm. Uh, and her late husband, uh, Jean-Max Gaudier. You know, I guess the most famous book is, uh, you know, History Beyond Trauma. Yeah. So very interesting work that I had never come across. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, she and they have uh, some interesting things to say and to show uh, about working with, you know, very severe states, you know, severe trauma, psychosis, intergenerational trauma. So they they've their whole lives were in her continued work regards applying psychoanalysis in fields that typically it has not been. And also coming from you know from France and having a Lacanian background, but also having a critique of sort of the orthodoxy, I suppose, around ways you know of conceptualizing the structure of psychosis and foreclosure as sort of a a non-starter and uh-huh. uh, uh, so Oh, it, it, it gave me sort of a kind of permission uh, to to uh, I- experiment with different ways of thinking about things. So they they utilize a concept that was not theirs, but that they really develop and, and apply called uh, kind of zones of non-existence or zones of death, zones of non-being.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. It was a concept, to my knowledge, and per Francois Devon told me that was developed by the Swiss analyst um, uh, Gaetano Benedetti who was also the founder of ISPS, by the way, or one of them, but anyway, to, to uh, just, you know, to sort of capture a certain kind of space that opens up in work with severe cases. And that could be, say, quite frightening for a clinician, but that, you know, the, the analyst or the clinician is called upon to enter into this space
1: uh-huh.
2: um, and, and, um, I think a couple of things come up here, which is you know, one that you know, this kind of psychotic, non-psychotic uh, bina- binary, in a way, it holds right because not everyone is psychotic. But I think, for me anyway, just for various reasons, like I, I, say, I think I alluded to at the beginning that I think structure is in a way secondary to sort of some kind of originary encounter with with uh, maybe non-being or the threat of non-being or or the void and this in some ways comes from Apollon's teaching and description of uh, sort of the so-called originary fantasy. But I always find this a very useful sort of um, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: metaphor or way of thinking about, about things, uh, about considering what's primary and what's not primary. Um, yeah. And so therein, you know, the, the gap, the bridge is, is um, I don't know where that metaphor fails, the metaphor of the bridge, but there's this question of entering into the zone of non-existence and And as a kind of, I think I I say a kind of threshold that one must cross, it's a price to be paid. And you experience this in working with certain people. It it can be very difficult, painful, evocative. Now, so there's a way in which uh, from a more orthodox position within, you know, Lacanianism, uh, some would call that, although he doesn't use the term, countertransference. Or there's a, the analyst is having a problem if they're experiencing something like that. Mm-hmm. but I began to question that in a way because, and others do too, I think, but it's, a, there's this question of, um, is it an obstacle or not? Is it, is it a block to the work in some way or is it not? So there's that question. And then there's also the question of, for lack of a much better term that I'm sure hopefully i will find someday, but self-disclosure, but
1: mm-hmm. not
2: self-disclosure, but disclosure.
1: Mm-hmm. So.
2: There's some very good examples of this problematic in the text, uh, trauma, yeah. history beyond trauma in the case of Henry. And long story short, where uh, Francoise, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I presume it's her case. It's not that clear. There's a case and the analyst is um, the patient calls her out in a way for having a, a shadow mm-hmm. on her face. where there's a kind of shadow that's fallen on her and the patient sees this and threatens to end treatment, etc. There's sort of something going on there. And the analyst, I don't know who the analyst was, if it was her or her husband, but doesn't respond, takes a more kind of orthodox position, to, I guess. But on second thought, at a later date, speaks of how she had just come from a funeral for so-and-so, where there was the inability to speak. And you can read, there's much more to it, I'm not doing it justice at all, but you get the point. So I'm left with the question of, that's surprising. That's a surprising thing to do. Uh-huh. To be honest. <laughs> that surprised me with someone with somewhat of a Lacanian background. And I'd never heard someone do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The treatment continued. Now, did she and she speaks as you know, did she put her suffering on the patient? That's a question. I think she argues that she did not.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But is she? Because that's you don't want that's not ethical, right? So there's a question of ethics here, and what constitutes ethics, and what is that? I think in the in my chapter on that, which is the last chapter, I, I suggest that it's not self disclosure per se. It's this. Is, this is a question of the zone of non existence and of erasure and of uh, being without something, of 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 the unrepresentable, right? Because what mm-hmm. happened was there was a funeral, and there was a failure to speak and to recognize something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think you're getting the point. Yeah, um, no, definitely. So I, I, this isn't all. Where I've had a really hard time. I've, I've got, I went as far as I could in that chapter nine to to say something about it. Mm-hmm. And I still am not sure, but I, mean, I don't know why I would be sure of it. But I mean, just it nags. So because there is always this question of where is where? How do you respond? And mm-hmm. um, it also gets it to what I was saying that. I want to distinguish for now anyway, between so-called counter transfer and self-disclosure and something else that's happening, say in that case of Henry, uh, but is also showing a, a level of flexibility that I hadn't really seen before. Yeah. And I've been able to use in my own practice and, and explore again to, to sometimes, you know, I'd like to think I'm not determined by theory, but are there are moments where you realize you still are in some mm-hmm. way. Or mm-hmm theory becomes this sort of um, rule, you know. uh, So it's interesting.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I I really, I mean, I think that it was very generous of you to end up with this whole development that's at the end of your book on the problem of countertransference or disclosure and these like other possibilities that can that can sustain the transference as well. But I really love the metaphors of the gap in the bridge and how you spoke about them, because it really clarifies for me who is crossing the bridge here. So like in the way I was presenting it, like, is this like, are we trying to bring this patient back into reality? Oh, are they going to get a passport and try to cross the bridge into consensual reality, or is the analyst going to cross the bridge into the zone of non-existence and non-being in order to see what's there with the-
2: I suppose it's the latter. Yeah. I I was-
0: That's yeah. what I got from your answer.
2: ...the bridge and who's crossing.
0: Yeah. I hadn't even thought about who was crossing until you were speaking, but I thought it was, I don't know, very very good to, to elucidate uh, like who is... Yeah. Like what the the analyst is doing there. That's really interesting. Okay. So just as a final question, I was hoping you could share some thoughts on what you think that people interested in offering psychoanalytic treatment for psychotic people in the United States should take into consideration. Like if they were, if you could give a, like any kind of advice based on your own experience what would that be
2: so i guess it depends what we mean by analytic treatment
0: well if somebody wanted to work sort of in your way of working and like just to to offer this to more people we're not all in oakland so okay
2: so So, yeah no i i I think the way i would someone this came up recently and it's kind of a there's a practical practical aspect to this question i think like how do you because of course everyone knows that you know people work in clinics and. Especially if you work in a clinic in a city and you're seeing people that are coming in with severe states, I'm able to work in a in a more or less any way that I choose. There, I have freedom to do that. However, you still are under the umbrella and have to contend with resistances and things that wear one wear you down. For me, just kind of wear me down. So I've tried to. That's why I, you know, continue to expand my practice and and reserve it mainly for people that are experiencing psychosis or or related things. So I think it's, you know, and that was not, I didn't take that decision lightly because for obvious reasons that, you know, there's um it's just typically just one person in the, you know, just me in the practice. So I think over time, I think what I would, I don't know if I'm recommending it, but what I found works is obvious also that you need a team of some sort, however loosely assembled. Right? Yeah. So, so for example, I, I now you know, I've been working for long enough say as a community provider related to a university counseling center and it just so happens there are a lot of young adults of course that is the age when people have first breaks or or early psychotic experiences but I think it just it it, it took time and and getting to know the psychiatrist there and other psychologists such that uh now I'm fortunate to receive A lot of referrals of people who are struggling with psychosis and and their sympathy, say, between how I'm working and, and how they're working. And like we were saying earlier, people need to be in different roles, right? So I might have a situation where I'm, of course, the therapist or the analytic in the analytic position, but there's a psychiatrist and a social worker, maybe, maybe even other resources that allow for a kind of virtual clinic, meaning without a building, you know, there isn't, it's not that we're all in the same building. Oh, yeah. Um, but I find this a very, quite effective and keeps, But you know, it requires just crossing paths with people that want to, that can do that. And I, I try to, yeah. you know, whereas in the clinic setting where there's kind of a rigid hierarchy and organizational stuff going on, find myself in battles.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's very exhausting. Mm-hmm. So, I, but over here, this is not exhausting. So I try to do what, you know, to 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 take the path where it, there's desire to do this work, and yeah. there's belief in the work. I don't have to justify it, for example. So, right. That's yeah. very. I feel very fortunate to, for now anyway, to have sort of these linkages, where and especially working with that age population, where yeah. you know the younger the better.
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, I think in terms of seeing change and where the psychosis and also kind of the compounding kinds of um, limited treatment can create someone in their forties and fifties where there's this kind of chronic mental illness and, and.
0: Oh yeah. yeah.
2: From, from decades of antipsychotics and mood stabilizers and sort mm-hmm. of a certain non-listening going on, you know, where they, you know, everyone's become accustomed to um, treating things in a very kind of rudimentary way, but. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I, you know, Christopher Bolas has that interesting book, catch me before they catch them before they fall. I think he talks about his practice in the seventies in the UK. And Uh I always, I read it somewhat recently, but I always heard about that because what he would do is he would do the he he had this way of uh, functioning as the analyst, but then he had a psychiatrist that he found that wanted to work on the team and a social worker. And he would, he had this other part to his practice that's interesting, but he would rent a hotel room to have a place for someone to go through a
1: crisis.
2: Whoa. <laughs> so very unorthodox in a way. Yeah. met with a lot of probably, I think, criticism, he said, but from his colleagues because he was really kind of going outside, uh, I think he would see people for very extended amounts of time, like a six hour session. And
1: anyway, no. that's
2: not what I mm-hmm. want to get into. But there's I think we have to be creative. To like, because you were saying earlier, why, why isn't it popular? Well,
1: yeah,
2: I don't know if it'll ever be popular, but it's popular with those (laughs) for whom it's popular. You know, it's it's happening where it's happening. I I do think there's something very inherently marginal about psychoanalysis, and we will always be in the margins because we're dealing with things that are probably pretty difficult and that maybe not everyone uh, is interested in, but. So anyway, those are some thoughts
0: on. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's very good advice. Thank you. I really, I think that's something to think about. Um, Thank you. So I think this is the end of our interview. I'm really grateful for your very detailed and generous answers to all of these questions that I had. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.
0: Great. I'm so glad.